Okay, it's uh, great to be here this morning. I hope you are in good spirits and ready for a challenge. Is that you? Pathetic people, pathetic. (laughs) I'm going to pray that we have some enthusiasm. Uh, Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for these words. We thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the chance to be here. And uh, Lord, we are here to learn. And for those of us who are distracted, uh, give us clarity in our brains in this next little bit that we may know you better and serve you more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Every time there's a baptism here at St. Matthew's, we give the family a copy of this book. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, Raise your hand if you've seen us do that. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, It's a great Bible for kids to start getting uh, familiar with kind of the Bible content and the Bible stories. It's written with warmth and humor, and uh, the illustrations are great. I know they're great because they're done by someone who just goes by the singular name, Yago. You've got to be great if you have a singular name. Yes, I'm looking at you, Madonna, and Rihanna, and Cher, Prince. I was going to say Lady Gaga, and I thought, hang on, that's two names. Anyway, uh, when you're known by just one name, you're not just someone, you're something, aren't you? But on the front cover, it says, interestingly, it says, every story whispers his name. And that's what we think, isn't it? The Christian life, the Bible is about Jesus. The Christian faith is about Christ. Every story whispers his name. That's exactly what we think, isn't it? That is, until we actually open the Bible, and then we think, well, this story doesn't whisper his name, nor does this one, or this one, or this one. In fact, Very few stories in the Old Testament seem to whisper his name. And if I'm honest, I have to say that the sound I most hear when I open up my Old Testament is not the whispered name of Jesus, but it's the sound of crushed silence or whatever noise confusion makes. You know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's kind of his code for the whole Old Testament. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So that's sort of Jesus' way of saying that every story whispers his name. And you might be thinking, yeah, that's one of the first conversations I'm going to have with him in heaven. One of the first, it probably won't be the friendliest. How does every story whisper his name exactly? Because I don't get it. And I don't hear that when I read my Old Testament. Fair enough, I think. Martin Luther, one of the greats of the Christian faith, said the prophets... They have a queer and odd way of talking. They ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot see what they're getting at. And many of us nod our heads and say, yes, we agree. But today we're starting a four-week series called Prophets Paving the Way for Christ in the lead up to Christmas. And from next week, we're going to have three weeks in the Old Testament prophetic book called Micah. We're just going to see how the ministry of Micah paved the way for the coming of Christ But for today, I really want us to see how every story, the entire Old Testament, paves the way for Christ or whispers the name of Jesus, even though that can be difficult to see at first glance. So I hope you're up for that, and I hope you're keen to join us over the next four weeks. Rightio, first thing we're going to see is that every Old Testament story whispers his name. Then we'll look at how the prophets in particular pave the way for the coming of Christ. But firstly today... We're going to see how uh, that works across the whole Old Testament. Now, raise your hands, folks, if you listen to the radio. A number of us. 
So you may be familiar with the radio kind of game where the host starts reading out an escalating amount of money. and the contestant who's called in has to call out stop at some point in time. And whatever amount the host had got up to when the contestant calls out stop is what the contestant takes home. But the contestant just can't hold out forever because a buzzer might go off at any point in time, in which case the contestant takes home nothing. Are you familiar with that game? You kind of get how it works. Well, let's imagine we played that sort of game with our Bibles. You start flicking. Page 1, page 10, page 100. And the buzzer goes off at the first mention of Jesus and the plan of the gospel. How far do you reckon you'd get before the buzzer went off? Page 1. Buzzer's already gone off, hasn't it? Because we know from our New Testament that everything uh, in all creation was created by Jesus And for Jesus. So it's already gone off, but let's keep turning. Page two, page three. Goes off again. Did you know that? As early as Genesis chapter three, verse 15, that's page three. After the creation of the world, after the fall of humanity into sin, we hear a great promise about the gospel. Genesis three, verse 15, write it down and look it up later if you like. We discover the offspring of Eve will crush the serpent's head. Now that is a whisper at least, isn't it, people? And we see that gospel promise fulfilled most explicitly on almost the last page of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 12 where it says, The great dragon was hurled down. Who is the great dragon? That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser, that's Satan, always accusing, the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. So as early as page 3, it's paving the way for the coming of Christ. He is the offspring of Eve who crushes Satan, ultimately By his own blood. Now you might be there thinking, okay, I'll grant that, but it's a bit of a one-off, isn't it? I mean, it's a little bit specific. When I read my Old Testament, most of it seems to be about people kind of walking around in the desert or in the dust one way or another. Okay, let's think about people walking around in the desert, walking around in the dust then, shall we? The book of Exodus, it's the second book of the Old Testament. It tells the story of the Exodus. That's the escape of God's Old Testament people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt towards the promised land of Canaan. So there's an obvious kind of parallel, isn't there, of God rescuing his Old Testament people from their literal and spiritual slavery in Egypt to God rescuing his New Testament people, us, from our slavery to sin and death and the devil. But what do you do about the people then wandering around the desert for the next 40 years, giving in to temptation and grumbling? How does that whisper the name of Jesus? There's no mention of a plan. There's no specific reference to Jesus. There's not much to go on at all, is there? You're probably thinking. Until you open up your New Testament 
and you hear about Jesus at the start of his ministry being led into the desert. And then one antenna goes up. And then he's been led into the desert for how long was it? 40 days. The other antenna goes up, or perhaps you're thinking, wow, that's a coincidence. And as he wanders around the desert, he's tempted by Satan numerous times so that it actually has to remind us of both the temptation of Adam by Satan on page 3 and the desert wandering of the Old Testament people of Israel back in Exodus. And so when Jesus withstands Satan's temptations in the way that Adam on page 3 or the people of Israel in the book of Exodus fail to, we actually see Jesus as the true human being. What Adam could have been, but he wasn't. We see him as the true firstborn son of God, what the people of Israel could have been, but they weren't. And when you make that connection, it's actually interesting, and it's deep, and it's beautifully moving. And it means that when we read page 3 of our Old Testaments or the book of Exodus, we don't just read stories about people who did the right thing that we should imitate, or people who did the wrong thing that we should avoid. That's all preparing us for the coming of a human being who would obey God where Adam didn't. Or it's preparing us for the coming of a son of God who walked with God faithfully, where God's firstborn son, Israel, wandered away from him. Really not making it up when we say that the whole Old Testament paves the way for the coming of Jesus, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. Every story whispers his name one way or another. So it works with the Old Testament in general. But secondly for today, what about the prophets more specifically? What about that part of our Bible from the book of Isaiah right through to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi? How do those 16 books, those 250 pages, that approximately one quarter of our Bible whisper the name of Jesus? I am so glad you asked that question. Because there's there's actually quite a few ways that the prophets paved the way for Jesus. The first way is the prophets uh, are part of an unfolding plan. Now that plan began uh, way back on page 1 of uh, our Old Testament, or certainly page 3, Genesis 3, with the promise of some kind of resolution to the problem of sin and death and the devil. And as that plan unfolded, it included a growing family that started with Abraham. And then became the people of Israel. And it moved from Eden to Egypt and then kind of in and out of Canaan, the promised land. And the prophets focus on that time in Israel's history when the Old Testament people of God moved in and out of the the promised land. But here's the thing with unfolding plans, isn't it? You want to know what's next. You want to know how it unfolds. And so the prophets and their preaching and their writing prod us to look forward to what's next. And what's next is the culmination of that unfolding plan, which climaxes with the person and the work of Jesus. So that's one way. The prophets also make, or at least hint, at specific promises of one to come. I suspect uh, many of us have this vague recollection of it saying somewhere that a child will be born. It's in there somewhere. Or uh, I know somewhere in the Old Testament it, it talks about a saviour coming from Bethlehem. Or, or I know that one like a son of man will come to bring an everlasting kingdom. 
Or perhaps most famously, we remember that a suffering servant will emerge who will take our sins upon himself. Like we heard Bryden read to us from Isaiah 53 that was written 700 years before the coming of Jesus. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions, dropping down to verse 5, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Down again. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You know, you look at those promises, those predictions made hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, and you just can't miss. It's just so clear how it relates to him, how it presages his arrival, even though it was written so long earlier. I think this is really reassuring from a faith point of view, that what was predicted, what was prophesied hundreds of years in the past has actually come to fruition in the person and the work of Jesus. But if I can uh, change gears for just a moment, how many of those predictions, how many of those promises, how many of those prophecies can you think of? I mean, there are 16 books of the prophets, 250 pages, about one quarter of our Bibles. You'd expect there to be dozens, maybe hundreds of specific promises, right? So how many can you remember? Like maybe less than 10? Maybe just those ones that we've talked about today, maybe one or two more? Before you get despondent or depressed about that, I want to say that is okay because that is not the only way that the prophets point to Jesus. We've already seen they describe an unfolding plan which culminates in his life, death, and resurrection. We've just now considered a few of the specific prophecies related to him But the prophets also tell us about a problem that Jesus came to fix. Uh, Last week, uh, I was dropping my sons off to school in St. Ives, and I noticed that my front right tire was flat. I thought, well, that's a problem because they're expensive to replace. But of course, you have the immediate problem, don't you, of having to change the tire. Now, as it happens, I was just around the corner from the, the car park of the church I used to work at. So I pulled into the car park at St. Ives, and I, and I went about changing the tire. Now, as it happens, it was a Thursday. People started to arrive at church for the day. And uh, one of them was called Wilson. He's this neat, tidy little accounts guy from Singapore. And another was Maggie. She's an older lady who runs the bookstore. And they both start watching me get to work with the brace and the jack changing the tire. Now, I'm doing an okay job at this point, as I believe, when Maggie yells out helpfully, lesson number one, you should check your tires more often. And I thought to myself, I could helpfully teach you a lesson or two. But then Wilson, little accounts guy from Singapore, he doesn't say anything. He he just comes straight up and he literally jumps on the brace and bangs off the first wheel nut like that and very playfully says, you don't do this very often, do you? (laughs) And he helped me get them all off. And he helped me put on the spare, 
uh, and, and lock them all up and walked away with a smile on his face and he said two years national service in Singapore and he worked in the army motor pool on big unimog beasts like this for a three-month rotation, which is just a good reminder, isn't it, not to judge a book by its cover. But um, the point of the story is that the prophets are actually a little bit like Maggie. They, uh, as they preach to the Old Testament people of God and their enemies and the surrounding nations, they tell us about a problem that we have that we may not necessarily want to hear but that we can't fix could be a problem with our heart the way we naturally worship things other than the living god could be a problem with our behavior uh, the lustfulness of our eyes our lack of generosity a lack of concern for other people could be actually a problem we have with our situation we just cannot escape sin and we just can't elude death And as much as we don't always want to hear it, they tell us about problems that we have that we cannot fix by ourselves. And in that way, they prepare us for the coming of one who can fix the problem. You see, who can really fix our wayward hearts? Who can actually change our behavior, not just at the surface level for a moment or two, but really from the inside out? And who can rescue us from the state in which we find ourselves where we cannot elude sin? And we cannot escape death. The prophets, you see, they point out our problems that are only fixed by the person and the work of Jesus. Sometimes the prophets highlight an attribute of God that is seen even more clearly in the flesh in the person of Jesus. Like whenever you read about God's justice being righteously meted out upon stubborn people, it should warn us soberly For the time when Jesus, who has been appointed judge of all things, when he will come to judge the living and the dead at the end of time. I mean, do you think that Jesus' judgment upon resolutely rebellious people will be any less severe than the judgment you read about in the prophets? Or do you think his mercy upon those who turn back to him in repentance and faith will be any less than the mercy we read about in the prophets who describe God as quick to forgive and restore those who return to him. The prophets point to an attribute of God that we see in the flesh in Jesus. And even though the prophets are not written about us, they are written for us. And sometimes as they talk to a people long ago, they equally talk to us, pointing out the consequences of our sins both the consequences of our sin negatively should we not turn back to Jesus, but also in such a way that we won't experience those consequences if we live the kind of life Jesus calls us to. The prophets on occasions can also describe the ideal human character positively in places and then negatively when even God's leaders at their best are deeply flawed people. You know when you see bad kings, you see bad prophets, You see bad priests and they're all in there. It pushes us forward to a time when the people of God are led by a good prophet and led by a good priest and led by a good king who we know as Jesus. And finally for today, the prophets create a longing that is only satisfied in Jesus and in the rest that he brings. Some of the prophets like Isaiah, whom we heard from from Brydon, and Micah, who we're going to be considering in the next three weeks, were written in the 8th century before Christ, 
when uh, Syria was the superpower of the day and Israel lived under the threat of being carried away into exile by Assyria. Some of the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied when the Babylonians posed the biggest threat to Israel and would eventually take what was left of Israel into exile, into captivity. Others like Malachi and Haggai towards the end preached after the people returned from captivity in Babylon. But even after the remnant of God's people returned back to the land, there was just this sense that things weren't the same, that the return failed to live up to its promise, that more was in store for the people of God, that greater rest just had to be available, you know, that deeper peace must be on offer, that better days surely lay in the future and that eternal fortunes needed to be secured. And I guess as you sat thereby on the banks of the rivers of Babylon, in exile, in captivity, in enemy territory. Perhaps the return to the land of promise was enough to keep you going. But what if you returned and you realized that you still longed for a better peace, a better rest, a surer inheritance, a deeper relationship with God? That's a longing. And that longing points to the coming of one who can offer lasting rest for the weary and living water for the thirsty, and who by his death and resurrection and gift of the Holy Spirit invites us into closer fellowship with God than had been known beforehand. The prophets unfold the plan. They make specific promises. They tell us about a problem that needs to be fixed. They highlight an attribute of God. They point out the consequences of sin. They describe the ideal human character, and they create a longing that is only satisfied in Jesus. They pave the way for Christ, and in those different ways and in many others, they whisper his name. Now that's all well and good. I'm guessing you're thinking, so what? What if I really believed that the prophets pointed to Jesus? What difference does that make to my life? Well, you know, it may not change your behavior in two hours' time. I mean, it might, but... It should certainly alter the aspirations of our hearts. So I have two hopes for today. I firstly hope to assure you of God's sovereign plan. And then I want to impress upon us how Jesus is at the very center of that plan. So I hope that even just by today, even just by thinking at a big picture, bird's eye level, even just seeing how that quarter of our Bible look forward to the coming of Jesus, you might trust or begin to trust in the sovereign plan of God for the universe and for us. From the beginning of scriptures, right the way through the prophets, hundreds and in some cases thousands of years before Christ comes, we are being prepared for his arrival. So I do want you to trust in God's sovereign control of all things. In the small things of your life, certainly. I really don't want to dismiss them. But today I am really talking about his sovereign control over the big things in history. Don't you reckon the prophets show us more vividly with bigger brush strokes why you can trust God and his purposes in the cosmos? So I want us to be assured of his sovereign control. So we really do trust him, that he knows what he's doing and that obedience to his scripture is always in our best interests And that he is supremely worthy of our faith. Uh, Raise your hand if you watch TV at all. 
Watch TV. If you watch TV, you would have seen those ads on TV. RBT means you need a plan B. You've seen those ads on TV? Uh, because the coppers are going to random breath test you in certain um, locations that we all know about, it means you have to have an alternative plan to get home rather than driving if you've been out drinking. And so on the ad, there's a bloke that gets home by being fired out of a cannon and someone else gets teleported and silly things like that. But the whole point is you need alternative plans, right? You need multiple plans. In other words, more than one plan to get home. You know, Jesus is God's only plan. There's no plan B. There's not even plan A. There's just the plan, and the plan is Jesus. It's not a workaround solution. It's not a great improvisation. It's not the best God could do with all the available resources at the time. So if God's great plan centers on and culminates in the person and the work of Jesus, we want to know him, don't we? And love him and yearn for him and be satisfied in him even more than we are today. If you're not a Christian here today, I hope you feel welcome. We do want you to know he is all that we have to offer. Or if I can put it the other way around, without him, we've got nothing to offer. He is at the center of God's plan. He is at the center of our universe. He is at the center of our church. We would love him to be at the center of your life as he is at the center of our lives, wouldn't we? When we read the scriptures, we do so to understand his life more than to just improve our life, though we know understanding his life is the secret to improving our life. We read it knowing that it was written to the people of old, and it was written for us. But most importantly, it's written about him. So we head into Christmas. We naturally would focus on our wants, on our wishes. I mean, that's the question, right? What do you want for Christmas? And my sense of it is, I mean, it's almost embarrassing, isn't it? We've almost moved on from wanting consumer goods because, frankly, we've already got them all. And so perhaps at the top of our wish list is just that we get through the whole thing unscathed. Or we have some really nice time with family, some peace, or some rest between one busy year and the next. But I want us to want him. And to know him, and to love him, and to yearn for him, and to be satisfied in him. Because if that quarter of our Bibles, known as the prophets, paved the way for him, then the Christian life is is not primarily about what we do for him. It's got to be about what he has done for us. And so if every story whispers Jesus' name, then the point of the Christian Bible, and the point of the Christian faith, And the point of the Christmas season is to want him. And it is to know him. And it is to love him. And it is to be satisfied in him. And I'm going to pray that we want that and we do that as a people right now. So why don't you join with me? I'm just going to give you 30 seconds to think about wanting, knowing, loving and being satisfied in Jesus, and then I'll lead us in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we do confess that when we read our Old Testament, sometimes it is difficult to hear the whisper of the name of Jesus. It can be tricky to see how it paves the way for Christ. And yet we have just thought today uh, in small ways about how it does just that. Uh, And so, Lord, we do want to trust in your sovereign plan of all things because we see that the Lord Jesus is just the plan. Not plan B, not even plan A, just the plan. Even more than that, Father God, we ask that you would, at this season, cause us to to want Jesus, to know him, to yearn for him, to love him, and to be satisfied in him, even more than we are today. And we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.